0: Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. I believe that your fallacies may be a little pathetic. We're going to dig into conspiracy theories and how they can be so dangerous. Plus, remembering my Uncle Dave. Let's get to it. Man, oh man, does my fallacy feel pathetic today. I don't know about you. What, remember that pathetic fallacy? Remember if I say pathetic fallacy, what do you, what do you think? What do you, what do you remember? You think to yourself, wait a second, let me reach back into the, into the chambers of my mind, the mist of my mind. Oh, yeah, I remember. I remember that was the thing I snickered at in high school when we learned about Shakespeare, the pathetic fallacy. It, you probably don't remember what it means. It was the thing that you learned right after you learned out about iambic pentameter, And nobody knows what that means either. And it doesn't matter. But here's what pathetic fallacy is. I'll define it for you. It's the attribution of human feelings and responses to inanimate things. So when you look outside and it's kind of crappy out there and the rain's coming down hard and it looks like it's snowing, and you think to yourself, well, Mother Nature there got a little bit of that pathetic fallacy Sort of, you know, representing what we all feel as we're dealing with this second wave. I don't know about you, but your fallacy is pathetic. Your fallacy, Define that for you, pardon me, I think your fallacy is showing. Uh, your fallacy is a mistaken belief, especially one based on unsound argument. And oh my goodness, we are awash in fallacies these days. Are we not? And many of them are quite pathetic, which is defined as miserably inadequate or of a very low standard. Your fallacy is showing, and it's pathetic. Today's program, we are going to confront that head-on, because I believe we are at a turning point. On Friday, we saw it. The barbecue dump in Etobicoke. The gathering on the front lawn of of Queen's Park. The gym in Scarborough. We've seen other businesses follow suit. The fallacies out there are pathetic. I want to get to the numbers. We're going to talk about conspiracy theories. We're going to confront them head on. We're going to talk about how do you deal with people who have conspiracy theories, have fallacies, mistaken beliefs that are pathetic. Perhaps you don't start by calling them pathetic. Maybe that's a maybe that's the opening. Don't go there. Just say, "Well, look outside." The I think I see a little pathetic fallacy out there, but your your fallacy is not pathetic. I'm willing to listen to it. I'm willing to confront it on head on and deal with it because I think it's dangerous. Here are your numbers: one thousand seven hundred forty-six new cases, thirty-nine thousand tests. Minister of Health just said moments ago in this province, hey, we can do up to 80,000 tests. We just don't have the demand. Nobody wants a test. What do you know? Who knows? Who can tell what? We have the capacity. We do. (laughs) That's a fallacy to believe anything else. We have the capacity for testing. It's you. You don't want to show up and get a test. Look at these numbers. Hospitalization's up 32. ICUs up 12. Ventilators up 17. All frightening numbers as we deal with this second wave. Toronto, your numbers, 622. Toronto pulls back out in front. Peel, 390. Peel was leading last week. Drops back, but 622 for Toronto. York Region, which is not in lockdown, keep in mind, 217 if that number continues to tick up, and keep in mind what we saw over the weekend, people heading out of this area, going to other areas, going into the York region to do some shopping, let's hit the Von Mills. Let's get to that Bass Pro Shop. I'm sure I can find something for my mom here. She loves camo. Here's another number, and this one has a particular importance to me, and it deals with with these fallacies, confronts them head-on. Eight deaths in the past 24 hours. One of those was my Uncle Dave. My Uncle Dave was in a home in Brampton. Uh, He passed away Saturday night. Uh, He was uh, advanced in age, he also had Parkinson's, he had comorbidity, Um, but nevertheless, the cause of death is going to be listed as COVID-19. Let me tell you a little bit about my Uncle Dave, special to me. When my mom passed away when I was a young boy, uh, her older brother, my Uncle Dave, said to my dad and myself, you come live with us. You come be part of our family. And so we did. And we lived there for a while until my dad remarried and we moved out. But Uncle Dave and his family were always a part of my family, an extension, a kind of a second family for me. And as you grow up, you know, as a kid, you don't really appreciate this, you don't understand this. You know, just your parents or, you know, the adults in your lives just make decisions for you and you just kind of go along with it. And, and then you realize later, you know what? You know, Uncle Dave and his family didn't have to continue to play, play such a role in my life. But they chose to. He chose to. And the gift that gave me to be able to know where I came from. Know a little bit about my background and, you know, and that connection there. Uncle Dave was important to me. He always had a ready laugh. He was always interested in what I had to say, what was going on in my life. He had a terrible sense of humor himself, though. <laughs> he, he ever did, you know the person at the family dinners that uh, you know, tells a joke and then it just, the whole table just sort of stops for a moment? And He's like, I don't, I don't get it. That, that was my Uncle Dave. He couldn't tell him, but boy, he sure enjoyed a good laugh. And so when you look at the numbers and you see eight deaths, are you going to quibble with that? Are you going to quibble about my Uncle Dave? Because, yes, he was not well. He had Parkinson's. Even before COVID, there was a point where we thought he wasn't going to make it, but he pulled through. So are you going to say, you know... You're going to be one of those people that says, you know what, the numbers are not what they say they should be because, hey, you know, your uncle Dave is on that list and he's going to go on that big board, the big ticker that goes by, about how many deaths we have in the province of Ontario, how many deaths we have in Canada, how many deaths we have in the whole world. like, well, you know, your uncle Dave probably wasn't going to, I mean, who knows how much longer he was going to live. So should he be on that list? Well, I think your fallacy is pathetic, man. Because COVID-19 got back into his home. They were actually fortunate, I say, got back in. uh, I'll correct that because the home he lived in. Uh, in Brampton was uh, very fortunate. The first wave, COVID, did not get into the home whatsoever. Not so lucky in the second wave. There you have it. Personal account of what's going on out there. And I'm not not trying to put any spotlight on me. There are people out there with much sadder stories, which real tragedies much closer to home. In some ways, you know, Uncle Dave, he had a tough go of it the last little while, and, and his struggle is done now. There's a lot of other people out there who are suffering. They're suffering, and then they look on the TV, and they see people outside of barbecue dumps saying, it's our right to reopen. Really? You're pathetic. Do you suffer from a fallacy which is defined as a mistaken belief, especially one based on an unsound argument? are you someone who has somebody in your family in your immediate circle who perhaps believes in conspiracy theories it used to be a conspiracy theory was kinda of something that was a you know sort of a bit of a laugh a lark like which one do you believe in a blah 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 and it's changed now hasn't it conspiracy theories abound and just like terms like fake news which now have become ubiquitous and i'm guilty of saying it, throwing it around as a kind of a casual insult. You know, my wife says, uh, you know, there's lots of milk left in the fridge and I'll look in the fridge and say, well, you're fake news. And with that, don't we take away something from us ourselves as a society when we start throwing that stuff around? Cause really what's behind that is misinformation and not believing a, a, a set of facts for example, have you heard of what the Great Reset? Have you heard about this? You may have heard this term. The Great Reset conspiracy emerged over the summer, after a World Economic Forum announced next uh, at that next year's meeting in Davos would focus on something called the Great reset, reset, an opportunity to usher in a more fair and just society. Uh, this I'm reading from a, a story from Global News reporter. Rachel Gilmore, who wrote a lot about this. And The Great Reset is actually a kind of this hodgepodge of one-world government fears that sort of believes that the pandemic is going to allow an opportunity from some set of elites to be able to reset the world and remake the world in a way that takes away our freedom uh, and our rights, And recently, the finance critic of the Conservative Party, MP Pierre Polyev, took to social media and actually amplified those messages of stop the Great Reset. The Conservative MP pointed to this address from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on September 29th to a UN conference. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts, to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in an address to a UN conference on September 29th. To help me talk about uh, conspiracy theories pardon me, a little bit more and why this matters, I am pleased to welcome to the program... Russell Muirhead, who is a professor at Dartmouth University who has co-authored a book called A Lot of People Are Saying, which explores the impact of conspiracy theories. Welcome, Russell.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: When we talk about the Great Reset, is there a danger in amplifying that message?
1: It's an interesting idea. that the. I mean, I think it, it's not clear what the Great Reset means, but but in its more extreme versions, it says that the pandemic itself was planned by global elites in order to create this kind of opportunity for resetting the global economy making it more sustainable um, that's a you know that's a pretty wild uh, accusation and it's a pretty amazing piece of piece of fantasy i don't think by just you know mentioning it you're you're inflaming it but it's a it's it's really quite a concoction
0: uh, the terminology has really been co opted by by fringe groups. Tell me more about the way conspiracies begin. In this case, it begins with someone saying those three words, and then, you know, it, it begins to to gain ground. How do these things gain purchase in society?
1: I mean, the real there are two kinds of causes. One is psychological, and the other is technological. And you could say that the psychological cause exists in each of us. We each want to live in a world that makes sense, in a world where good things happen for reasons and bad things happen for reasons, and where we're not vulnerable to accidents that, um, you know, that, that can't be attributed to any human being, to any intention. So we want a world that makes sense like that, and, and that inclines us to look for someone to blame when something bad happens, like a pandemic. It makes us feel more in control if we can point the finger of blame. That's the psychological cause. We all walk around with that cause every day. What's really changed in addition to that is a technological cause, and that's that right now any of us can communicate to the whole world for free just by putting up a tweet. It used to be really expensive to communicate to lots and lots of people, and now it isn't, and that's what's allowed some of these more... Um, sort of fabulous concoctions to, to be disseminated.
0: And they spread, spread so much faster now. It seems like the the point where something is said to a point where it is absorbed as a conspiracy is lightning fast.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, it took years and years for uh, conspiracy theorizing about the JFK assassination to really get traction. Books had to be written um, and and. And years passed while conspiracy theorists really worked out their, their views. Now it's, I mean, overnight is actually, it's, it happens faster than that. It happens in a matter of seconds. And the Great Reset Conspiracy is a good example of that. I mean, no sooner had Justin Trudeau said, this is an opportunity to do a reset, than poof, the conspiracy was out there in social media.
0: So then how do we combat that?
1: You know, it's, it's so... It's such a great question, and I think, I think. listen, we've got to acknowledge that almost everybody, every one of us, is going to believe some kind of conspiracy theory some of the time. And that's partly because, you know, from time to time, there are con- true conspiracy theories, um, and they seem plausible to us. What we have to resist is the conspiratorial mindset, where we begin to think that the, you know, we, we begin to explain everything in terms of conspiracy. And... And so I think that's one thing, just be on guard against. If you do find yourself feeling sympathetic or, or considering a certain kind of you know, accusation to be plausible, just make sure you don't slide into explaining everything that way all the time. And we have to be willing to, you know, to, to do two things. One, to, to live in a world where bad things happen for no reason. The ability to do that is a sign of maturity. And second, to live in a world with bad facts, with things that we, rather, you know, we wish weren't true, um, but that are true. And again, that's another feature of maturity. So I really think that the the slide into a kind of conspiratorial mindset is just a refusal to live in the world.
0: Is there also something to, the you know, just a, a sense of superiority to be able to say, yes, I, you know, sure, the, let's say, for example, all of these experts say that wearing a mask is a good idea for both my own health and the health of others in terms of stopping the spread of the virus, but that somehow I have divined a greater truth.
1: There is something like that. There's a there's a claim to knowledge and to specialized knowledge to being part of a cognoscenti, uh, a, a group that has the real key to understanding what's going on. And that's a kind. There's a certain kind of yeah arrogance in that, um, as opposed to skepticism, which is a real genuine humility. We, you know, a skeptical person might say, "Huh, they changed the advice on masking over the last you know six months." Um, and, and they've updated, you know, people have updated um, their understanding of, of the kind of protection that masks give and the kind of masks they've offer the most protection. So when you hear somebody say something, you know, you should not assume that that's the final truth on the subject. That's just skepticism versus um, I know and the rest of you don't. And that's, a, that's arrogance.
0: I started this program today talking about pathetic fallacy my way of sort of joking around, Your fallacy is pathetic, and I I want to address how we communicate with those that hold conspiracy theories very dear and deeply held beliefs. How you talk to someone like that, and the first thing not to do, from everything I read and I think I understand, is to say you're pathetic, is to to be able to try and understand or listen on some level.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, but I I think it's also very, very helpful to try to change the subject. You know, it's very, very difficult to change people's minds. Um, Even in the most rational university seminar discussion, I teach in university, very hard for one person to change another person's mind. It's so hard that I almost never see it happen. So don't go into a conversation saying, hey, I'm going to change your mind. Um, That's that's just asking for a conversation that's not going to be pleasant for anybody. If it's a friend... Um, Someone you know, someone you have a relationship with who's deep into conspiracism, I'd say change the subject. Focus on things that are shareable, that are evident to your own senses on a film that you can both watch, on a song you can both listen to, on a dessert you can both eat, on a glass of wine that you can both taste, on a walk that you can both take. Um, You know, focus, ask ask your friend what the weather is. (laughs) Uh, Focus on, on what's evident to the senses and on the world that we share.
0: Russell Muirhead is a professor at Dartmouth University. Great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for your perspective today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, if you check The Guardian, which I did today, it has a a story about talking to people who hold conspiracy theories. And I I love what the professor just said there about trying to convince somebody uh, that their viewpoint is wrong is not going to work. And if you go into a conversation with someone who holds a conspiracy theory or uh, believes something that you think is is in just not correct and is p- potentially dangerous to the rest of us in terms of the spread of COVID, trying to win, going into the an argument as, I'm going to win, is not going to get you there. In fact, according to this article in The Guardian, which quotes a professor from Cambridge University, here is one way to go after it. Quote, people seem to be receptive to you exposing the ways in which they may have been manipulated. In other words, if they truly believe that the great public is being manipulated by elites somehow with disinformation, turn that around and suggest perhaps they are being manipulated. The Manassian trial is underway again in Toronto. Alec Manassian, of course, the man uh, charged in the Toronto van attack. And at the trial, what is of question is not whether or not Mr. Manassian drove the van that killed 10 people, but whether or not he comprehended uh, his actions and the consequences of his actions, his defense has pleaded not criminally responsible. And on the stand today, Dr. Alexander Westfall, who is an American psychiatrist who is testifying for the defense. And this is really fascinating because the doctor actually interviewed Manassian, and normally, a, an exhibit like that, uh, an interview like that, would be entered as part of court exhibits, and then it would be public domain. And I could tell you, for example, that you'd be able to see some of that tonight on Global News, just the way, for example, we have been able to see the police interview with Manassian, because that's part of the court exhibits, although in that case we had that previous. But you get my point. Uh, in this case, Dr. Westfall had demanded that his interview with manassian not be made as a public document and the doctor explained that he didn't want to do so because in the interview and in part of his testimony he talks about uh... the autism spectrum and how it applies to manassian and the doctor was very concerned that if that got out that that could do great damage and the judge in the case said that it felt like having a gun put to her head. That was the uh, judge's uh, assertion of the situation by being told that you can't unseal a document even before it had been entered, even before it had been seen. Uh, the judge said, though, that this, this psychiatrist's testimony was absolutely key to Manassian's ability to have a fair defense, so she has sealed it. And our Catherine McDonald is watching the proceedings uh, as we speak, uh, the Manassian trial continues, and our Catherine McDonald will have a story on that for us tonight, coming up on Global News at 5:30. Also tonight on Global News at 5:30, starting, I'm really looking forward to a look back at a very disturbing crime, a very disturbing case that happened in 2003, uh, the murder of a of a mother of two teenagers who then subsequently were sentenced. Uh, for their role in the death they were sentenced as juveniles. Uh, their identity, both their identities and the identity of their mother are still protected. But coming up tonight on global news at 5:30 our Karen Lieberman, our reporter Karen Lieberman speaks with one of the sisters and Karen joins me on the line now. Hi Karen.
2: Hi Alan thanks for having me.
0: This must have been a very difficult interview.
2: It was very graphic, uh, very compelling. Um, And quite fascinating. And you sort of go through all the emotions with this woman who we call Sandra. And she, as you mentioned, uh, is one of the two sisters known as the Bathtub Girls. So known, in fact, that their story not only made national headlines, but was the plot behind a Hollywood film actually starring um, Abigail Breslin and Mira Sorvino, actresses that many of us know. Um, And so, as you mentioned, Alan, this was a case back in 2003. And Sandra, who's the elder sister, uh, with her younger sister, drugged their mother with Tylenol 3s and drowned her staging it as an accidental death, and got away with it, actually, until a year later, and then um, charged with first-degree murder, sentenced as a young offender. And now, all these years later, after serving her time, is this 34-year-old woman with a whole host of issues, trauma, dissociative identity disorder, which many of us know as multiple personality disorder, but also a very compelling story um, and was you know, felt that she wanted to to share so much of what happened to her as a child. And really, Alan, the moments leading up to the murder.
0: Her identity remains protected by the court's.
2: It does, and so when you see or hear, see and hear our story, you will notice that you can see me perfectly, but you will see Sandra in silhouette with her face as well blurred to protect her identity, and her voice is uh, somewhat distorted so that her identity is fully protected as she was a youth, and so she is forever protected by the Youth Justice Act. But she's entitled to speak and has so much to say, so much to say, actually. Alan, we sat down with her for probably four hours. Um, and there was nothing that was off-limits. She really, it was like opening the floodgates, and this was a woman who, you know, has bottled up these emotions and this trauma for 17 years and, you know, acknowledges that she did this horrible crime. That is not in question. She served her time. She, she murdered her mother. Um, but it's, there's so much more about her life that she wanted to share with us and it's a story about, you know, a horrific childhood of physical abuse, sexual bu- abuse, um, neglect, and, and why she killed her mom. Uh,
0: she spoke with you. Uh, what do we know about where her sister is?
2: She and her sister have a relationship. Um, so because their identities are protected, there are very limited facts that we can share about them. We know that they have a relationship and uh, we know that both of them are single mothers. Uh, they each have a young child. We know that Sandra, who is the one that is in our story, is a scientist. She went to university. Um, and and that's basically what we can tell you about her and what we know about her and that, you know, together they committed this horrible crime. Um, and and that was a long time ago. They were 15 and 16 years old. And again, now Sandra's 34. Um, and, you know, it was, it was very emotional. In fact, I can tell you that several times, I would say at least twice, she broke down and, you know, we stopped, we, we breathed through it and she wanted to continue to tell the story. It was very important. She talked about her truth that she wanted to convey, you know, what she endured as a, as a child and the trauma that she now lives with. Because just because she committed this terrible crime and served her time doesn't mean she doesn't live with the trauma of having been through all of that as, as a young person.
0: You know I remember covering this case I was a crime reporter back in the day when this when this happened and so I would go to court I, I covered I didn't cover it gavel to gavel as we would say but I did cover it I and I do recall that much of the public discussion at the time was sort of an anger around the designation of, of these two girls as young offenders and that mm-hmm. their identities were sealed and that, that that they should serve time as adults and that the book should right. be thrown against them I wonder Just, you know, speaking over these four hours uh, with her, if there was a big surprise that, you know, had you view the case in a different light.
2: You know, I think that, And everything you say is is so right and true, and I think it's important that people understand that aren't familiar with the cases you are, that, you know, the judge at the time said that the case against him was overwhelming. In fact, he would said in his words, and I have the quote in front of me, Alan, he said, it's probably the strongest case I've ever seen in over 30 years of prosecuting, defending, and judging criminal cases. That was Justice Bruce Duncan. For me, it was sitting down with a woman who, you know, has lived a very difficult life, and, you know, irregardless of this terrible, terrible crime that she committed, uh, she's a person, she's a human being, and what she says she experienced is, is quite overwhelming. And it was her mistaken belief, and those are her words, it was her mistaken belief that her mother was going to die of her addiction, of her alcoholism. She didn't understand it as a young person because she was dealing with so much on her own, and she didn't understand that her mother was, was dealing with was an alcoholic. And so she said... She's never going to stop drinking. She's going to die from this. I should just kill her because it was like torture being trapped there. So her words are very strong, and and you know she was quite honest as we sat down together. And so for me, it was it was how candid and graphic and open she was um, that is is compelling and important, and I think you know just gives a, a different view to the whole case.
0: And we'll see this interview over two nights. Is that right, Karen?
2: We will, Alan. There was so much material, but we managed to uh, break it up into a two-part series, which begins this evening and continues tomorrow night.
0: Karen Lieberman, our Global News reporter. I'm looking forward to seeing that story tonight on Global News at 5.30. Always great to have you on, Karen. Much appreciated. Thanks, Alan. Well, here's another, just if you needed one more example of 2020 just being just the worst, the literal worst 2020. Now you can't even enjoy ice cream. No, they're taking that away from us too now. Cortha Dairy is recalling certain ice cream products in Ontario because of, quote, possible presence of pieces of metal.
1: you got to be kidding me.
0: Is there any more 2020 than that? Cortha Dairy flavors affected by the recall. Recall, chocolate chip cookie dough. Uh huh. That's not. And mint chip. Well, if you're getting the mint chip, you're probably not thinking straight anyway. I mean, that's just my perspective. I got strong opinions. You know, you don't like it? Get your own show. Mint chip is terrible. Oh, <laughs> well, I wanted to mention this quick thing. Have you ever you just come across these uh, these news headlines and you think to yourself, I don't know. I don't know who this is. Somebody by the name, this is out of Sky News, out of the UK, Rita Ora. I don't know. Pop star. I guess pop. uh, Maybe maybe the kids are all loving the Rita Ora. Maybe that's uh, all they listen to these days. I wouldn't know. I could run into her tomorrow and no idea who she is. But I tell you, I do know her now because she's had to apologize after holding a house party with 30 of her friends in London. Okay, well, that's dumb because, you know, London, much like other parts of the world, under lockdown, you're not supposed to have 30 of your friends over. So that's stupid. I mean, you know, like think about the, you know, the Mississauga party that we had over the weekend where we had all those people. Yeah, they're dumb. But here's the thing that I can tell you is today we have uh, people at uh, Global News searching for any social media from that party that was over the weekend in Mississauga, seeing if anybody was dumb enough to do what this pop star did, namely put it on Instagram. (laughs) If you're inviting 30 people over, maybe maybe you're not... Maybe you're not putting on the selfie of you and your 30 friends gathered around your tub of chocolate mint ice cream. Don't do it! That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.